So this is our last week of the Good Shepherd series. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful, and I really, like, if we get a takeaway, I hope that you have seen Jesus Christ as our Good Shepherd. I'm thankful that we had this time to dive into and see who our Savior is. We found out that Jesus comes to those who he loves, that he truly did love Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that he enters into their pain. He responds to them in different ways from the same statement. He responds to Martha in a way that ministers to her, saying that he is the resurrection and life. And then he says to Mary, he enters into her pain. Her sorrow was real. Her mourning was real. And he sits with her and he weeps alongside her. Last week, we saw that Jesus allows those who are close to him to participate, that we aren't lonely spectators in the stands, but we get to actively work out and work with God. We get to participate with God of the universe, and I find that amazing and refreshing. We saw that Jesus prays, and that's an encouragement to me to be praying and finally, Jesus displays the power by raising Lazarus from the dead with three simple words, Lazarus, come out. From the lips of Jesus to the ears of a dead man, we saw life go into a dead corpse. The words of the Son of Man awakens dead flesh. He makes the dead alive. Over and over again, though, we see that Jesus is divisive. He lays this out. There are two options with Christ, and everybody has that option here in this room, but the two options are present. People who believe in Jesus and who he is and who he says he is, and people that don't. Those are the two camps that we see. There is a divisiveness in Christ. There are those who are alive and those who are dead. Those who see the words of Jesus and they rejoice, and they praise, and they're thankful for those who see them and maybe get bitter, angry, or indifferent. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And it might look confusing inside of our bulletin, but I hope to make it simple. But we're going to look at two points, really. The first one is the plot of man, and the second is the purpose of God. We're going to see how that structure plays out through this text, but the plot of men and the purpose of God. This raising from the dead will split people into two camps. We will see that in the text. I want everybody, if you have your Bible or a phone, we're going to be in John chapter 11, verse 45. John chapter 11, verse 45. Verse 45 starts with this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performed many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that this is better for that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, but would gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. The word of the Lord. Two responses here. Two workings that John wants us to be known. We see that there is a plot to men. They see what needs to be done. They see what has to be done. They need to kill Jesus. And if it doesn't happen soon, they're going to lose everything. Then you have the purpose of God. One's going to fail. One will not. So let's take a moment and look at the plot of men first. You will see in your handout that it says plots of men and then motivated by fear. Fear of losing their nation. Fear of losing their place of worship. Fear of losing their prominence prominence and then the solution is kill him to save it all this is the plot of men so this is it laid out and we're going to go here right now so back at verse 45 it said many of the jews therefore who had come to mary had seen and believed him right some people are like yes that guy is the messiah he is the king to come good but verse 46 says some of them went to the pharisees and told them what jesus had done so the chief priest and the pharisees gathered the council and said what should we do? These Jewish leaders were motivated by fear. And let's get something clear right here, that the chief priests and the Pharisees, right? Who are they? These are key players that we see. Remember, we want to be a scripture-saturated people. We want to be in the Bible. We want to observe, interpret, apply. So when we see these names, we want to take a step back. Who are the Pharisees? Who are the Sadducees? Who are the chief priests, what is going on? Like, we can look into that and get a better understanding for what we are reading. So let's get something clear. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they are the religious elite. And the religious elite are gathering the council. So I want you to know a little bit about the council. These, this is the Supreme Court, right, for us for our understanding, if you know what the Supreme Court is in first century Jewish tradition, this would be like the Supreme Court. So they would take cases before the council or the Sanhedrin, and they would talk about them and be like, what do we have to do about this? So this was a big deal for them. They thought this was big enough to take it to the highest court in the land. And we see them ask, what are we to do? So they are going to the highest level of the food chain and trying to figure out what this Jewish man with 12 of his ragtag disciples are up to. These people are doing miracles all across Judea. They have to get this thing under control or they might lose everything. They're under Roman occupation at this time. And we saw this in chapter 6. After he fed thousands with five loaves and two fish, it said, and they were perceiving that then he were, uh, it says that perceiving then that he, they were going to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So we already see earlier in John that some people wanted to make this man king and prop him up from his miraculous acts. It's very simple to say that this man is threatening the establishment. Not only that, Jesus said he was the manna, that he was the bread of life that they need a feast on, that he himself is the light of the world. 
He points to every major Jewish feast that they have, and they points all the attention back on himself, that he is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And with this final act of raising a man from the dead, this is the last straw. Allegedly, Jesus' followers are claiming not only does he have power over food, does he have power over water, does he not only have power over demons, but of death itself. These are the claims of Christ. So if you think that he is such a, just a moral teacher, you are sadly mistaken. He doesn't give us room for that. He is either God or not. So the religious elite are fearful, and they're motivated by fear, right? So they devise a plot. So we see that the plot of man is motivated by fear. Why do I say that? We see in this section of the text that they were fearful. Verse 48 says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were fearful of losing their nation. They are fearful of losing their place of worship. They are fearful of losing their prominence. They had reason to fear, though. Think about it in their mindset. The Jewish people are tied to the land of Israel for centuries. They've seen the exile happen. They've been kicked out of the land. They've been forced out because they were disobeying God. They have heard stories after stories that when their forefathers followed other gods, bad things happened. And the Jewish people were a proud people, but they've also been a chastised people. God allowed them to face judgment on their actions. So with the Roman occupation, they just wanted to keep the Romans out of their hair. They didn't want that pressure. They just didn't want to rock the boat. They wanted to keep the status quo. They rock the boat too much, they might be in danger of losing their entire heritage, their land. They wanted their nation. They wanted their customs. They wanted their way of life. They want everything that they've always known. They wanted comfort. And they wanted it so much they missed what God was doing. Jesus did not do anything that was outside of the Old Testament. He wasn't breaking any of their laws. Jesus was fulfilling the law of God, and all these prophecies were pointing to him. And he was doing it right in front of them, and they were blind, they couldn't see. They were spiritually dead, they couldn't see. They were more concerned about preserving their nation, and they missed the king of the nation. They wanted their rights, they wanted their comfort, they wanted their stability. They didn't want their God. And it's scary, man. Like, it really is. Because as I was writing that, I can't throw too much blame on Israel. Do I want my country or do I want Christ? It's a fair question to ask. Do I want my rights or do I want to be redeemed and see people redeemed? Do I want to just be left alone or do I want to be led by God? Do I care more about America than I do Christ or comfort than Christ? Do I care about these things more than Christ? The Jewish people have grown fat and happy 
And they were willing to kill an innocent man to keep the status quo. That's what they were saying. They wanted their places. They wanted their prominence. They wanted their power. They enjoyed their freedoms that they had from God. And we can get caught up in the same thing. That's why we have to be scripture-saturated and a prayerful people. And we cannot be motivated by fear. Fear of losing. We can fear the Lord. We can't fear man. We can't fear the, the finite things that fall through our hands. Not only did they fear losing their nation, they feared losing the place of worship. When they say our place, they mean the temple. And the religious elite are fearful that they will ha not have a place to worship God. The religious elite fail to realize that the time for God dwelling in brick and mortar and stones and tents and temples, that time is coming to an end. In fact, in 40 years, what they are afraid of happening is going to happen anyways. The temple will be destroyed. It will be no more. They will have no place to sacrifice, and they won't have a place for the atonement of their sins in brick and mortar. They're afraid that their place of pilgrimage is going to be no more, that their temple will be brought down to rubble, that they will not be able to communicate with their God, and if they lose their temple, they'll lose their nation, they'll lose their prominence. Fear of losing their prominence. The last part I find fascinating. And I just want to slow it down and read. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. That's what they say. Everyone's going to believe in that guy. Not me, but that guy. Not what we set up, but that guy. Everyone's going to believe in him. Jesus. Everyone's going to believe in him if we let this go on. The Pharisees and the chief priests are two parties that came together against Jesus in the Jewish Supreme Court to gather the council and they had a response. What are we going to do with this guy that's doing many signs? Their concern is simple. If I don't take action against Jesus, he will win approval and the people will look at him and we will lose our freedom. They're going to look at Jesus, not us for wisdom. They'll look at him for everything, not us. Everyone will accept Jesus and his cause. The Pharisees seem to fear that Jesus will be lifted up as the longed-for king and that this king could lead a revolt against Rome. That's legitimately what they were afraid of. They were afraid of losing things. While this is possible, I also think they probably got comfortable being in charge. From their point of view, if they let this man go unchecked, the nation will make him a king. And Jesus is saying a lot of stuff that they don't like. Hanging around people that they don't like. Being around the unclean, the sick, the outcast. He's going to the impure and offering them cleansings. He's saying that there will be a time when you won't have to worship in the temple anymore, but you'll worship in spirit and truth. The Jewish leadership had an opportunity to embrace this man as their God. And they rejected him. They spent their life in this book, and they missed the author when he was standing right in front of them. They were willing to trade prominence, a place, and power for one person. 
Let that not be us. Let us risk it all for Jesus Christ and him crucified and the spirit that he gives us in order to make disciples of all nations gathering in the people of God. Let us lose for that. Let us not lose for power and privilege and prominence. A fleeting temporal thing. They're willing to have a death of one innocent person just to keep everything the same. And that's their solution. Their solution is kill one, save them all. Verse 49, it says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest this year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. The ends justify the means. This tone of arrogance and pride, and he had like this idea that, well, it's simple. We kill him, we'll be fine. That's it. They're telling the other leaders, you know nothing at all. It's like it's not even a question in his mind. Like, you just killed Jesus, and everything's easy. Of course. Let's kill Jesus, an innocent man. He's done nothing wrong. A man who seeks healing and restoration and redemption, provided sight for the blind, food for the hungry. He's cared for those who the world has forgotten. But yes, this man who rocks the establishment, threatens us, and we're fearful. Let's put him to death because, you know, the ends justify the means. It's the way of the world. It's the way of the devil. Reality. It's not the way of The story is repeated over and over and over and over again. For those who are familiar with the Bible, if you go early into the Bible back in Genesis, you'll see that there was a man named Israel and he had sons, right? And these happened to be the tribes of Israel. So he had one son and his name was Joseph and he had dreams that he was going to be a ruler above all of his brothers. And the brothers got jealous. They hated it. Oh, dreamer. So what they do? They kidnapped him, made him a slave. That's what they did to Joseph. Time passed, and he became one of the most powerful men in Egypt, and a famine struck. His 11 brothers were going to starve to death. The line of God's people was quickly looking like they would be snuffed out. They were facing starvation, but Joseph chose to save his family. In fact, he's the only one that could have saved that family. And why is that? Why could he do that? Why was he in Egypt? He was in Egypt because of God's plan, God's purpose. Because his brothers were jealous, sold him into slavery. Something that evil, something that wicked was the means that God used for the salvation of his people. When he confronts his brothers after providing for them, he says, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good, to bring about many people that should be kept alive. That's what he says to them. The religious elite wanted Jesus dead. They wanted him dead for evil reasons. They wanted prominence. They wanted places. They wanted power. They wanted to stay in control, and they wanted it all for evil. But Jesus used it for good. 
But just like the story of Joseph, there was something bigger going on in the background. Jesus was going to be murdered. An innocent man, not for the protection of places, prominence, and powers to the religious elite, but for the purpose of God. That's why he's going to be killed. Because it was the purpose of God. The purpose of God will be carried out by the plan of men. So we're moving on to the second point here. You'll see on, on our bulletin. And how do we know this? Once again, verse 51 says, He did not say of this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not the nation only, but also gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. The plans of men were to put Jesus to death so they could live in peace. So they could keep the Romans off their back. That they would maintain power and prominence. That they would be able to have the temple. And Jesus wanted to flip all of this on their head. End result will be the th same. Jesus Christ will die and raise. But not everything's the same. To unleash something new. To unleash something better. Something that the entire Bible has been pointing to. The purpose of God is not motivated by fear. It's motivated by love. The solution is the same, but the means of carrying it out are completely different. Everything is different. The motivation is not fear or the fear of losing, but redemption, restoration. Back when we were going through John... Three, for God so loved the world, he gave up his only son, that whoever shall perish should have eternal life. For God so loved the world. The purpose of God was to send his one and only son to die for the nation. And that's the fulfillment of the people of God. The religious elite were so committed to a nation, they wanted to keep their status quo. And they forgot that they were supposed to be a city set upon the hill, to be a light, and their existence was to be fruitful and multiply. To go to the ends of the earth. Their job was to be image bearers of God. To show the wicked nations around them the goodness of God. The God most high. The God over all gods. We're supposed to be telling people in the world about the goodness of God. So the good news will not spread from the mouths of religious elite. Or the prominent. Or the powerful. It will spread from the mouth of the weak, the gentle, the lowly. And the meek will inherit the earth. This is what we see come to pass. All corners of the earth. And how do we know this? It says Jesus will die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but gather into the children of God who are scattered abroad. That is a beautiful thing because I don't think there are many ethnic Jews in this room. This is the picture of our good shepherd going to the ends of the earth to grab people. We see in Revelation 7-9 that after this I look and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This isn't just the king of the Jews only, but the king of kings, lord of lords. Okay? The entire globe, the shepherd, is gathering sheep. There's no room for racism, bigotry, or hatred based on cultural or customs. We can't have that, okay? 
We are united as one people, one spirit, one king, and that is Jesus Christ. Okay? This is what they are laying out here. And there's a fulfillment of a true place to worship. So not only is he bringing in a people of God, but a true place of worship. The religious elite were fearful in losing their brick-and-mortar temple. Jesus has been saying there is no need for the temple after he accomplishes what he set out to do. Remember, the temple is the place where God meets man, where heaven and earth collide, where you can go and talk to God. The temple is a place where God meets man, where the glory of God resides, where the creation can come and commune with the creator. That's a beautiful thing. And we have learned earlier in the Gospel of John that this is one of the reasons why Jesus was hunted down. This is what he said about the temple. In John 2, 18, it says, The Jews said to him, What signs do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to them, It's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is saying, I am the temple. You want to get close to God, you get close to me. That's it. If you want to get close to God, you get close to Jesus. As the embodiment of the temple, Jesus is the place where God is present amongst his people. This week, being Christmas, the wonderful verse in Isaiah, Therefore the Lord let himself give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he will be named Emmanuel. We see that on cards. We see that up on Christmas ornaments. Jesus is God with us. He is Emmanuel. He is God for us. He is the temple. Not brick and mortar. The temple is not limited to geographical foundation with fixed stones. Jesus has living stones. He has movement. He's not limited to a single place. What the religious elite were fighting to keep would soon become obsolete, right? Time is coming and is now here when we can worship in spirit and truth. The temple is not a place in Jerusalem. It has changed from geography to spiritual. It's not a place, but it's in a person. And he's the new temple. And we have to go through him in order to get to God. In fact, that's the only way to get to God. So the plan of man is to keep people in their places and keep them safe. But God's purpose is is to provide people of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and make them portable temples that aren't landlocked. Jesus will carry out his plan, not through the religious elite, but through the redeemed sinners who trust him. People like me and you, if you trust on the Lord, if you trust in him to be Savior and Lord of your life, then you have this inheritance. And that's the path to true prominence. Elites want to keep their place of prominence. They want to keep their view of their temple. But Jesus flips that on, the, on his head, right? It's a radical new transition. That the temple is not of brick and mortar, but of flesh and blown. Not of dead building materials, but living and active. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Do not know that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God dwells inside of you? 
See that Jesus died and rose from the dead? He gave us a helper. The Bible calls this third person of the Trinity the Holy Spirit. He guides us and leads us to become more like Jesus. Remember, the will of God for your life is to become more like him, and we cannot do that by just mustering up a few good habits. We need to go from death to life with this Holy Spirit guiding us. So the purpose of God is that the Holy God, the Father, sends his righteous son, Jesus, to die for unrighteous sinners, us, so that we can be redeemed into God's family. That's the church, and the Holy Spirit leads us to become more like Jesus. That's the gospel, right? And the Spirit of God means it's no longer landlocked in Jerusalem. It would be a long plane ride. It would be a far trip to go to Jerusalem every time I needed to talk to my Savior. But the Spirit of God dwells in us if we are believers. The Spirit of God dwells in us if we are believers. Just think about that for a moment. The Spirit of God dwells in us if we're believers. If you call on Jesus' name and trust in him as Lord, the Spirit of God dwells in us if we are believers. And then you, in this room, you trust in him, become portable temples. And the church is living stones going about. I say this multiple times, that if you are a Christian and you are redeemed and you are a portable temple, whoever you're close to, they're not far from God. It's not just me standing up here that has the job of teaching these things to you. We have to go out. We cannot be landlocked. This is good news. We don't have to pilgrimage. We don't have to go on long journeys. But right here, Parsons Avenue, we can commune with the creator of the universe. And we don't need to seek out animals for sacrifices because the purpose of God's solution was the same. Jesus did have to die. But not to save Israel from the Romans, but to save them from the indwelling sin that plagues us all. That's the real tyrant over our lives. We have a once and for all sacrifice and his spirit now dwells in us if we trust in him. I love when this happens, and it happens a lot, but if we look at our question and answer today, it says, does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? Yes, the answer is. Because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sins, and God graciously imputes or credits Christ's righteousness to us as if we were our own and will remember our sins no more. So the good life, righteous life, perfect life of Christ is put on Josh. God sees me as Jesus, and I can commune to him. The plan of man would have been temporary. It would have been a partial cure. But the purpose of God is never temporary. It's getting to the root of the problem, and the root of the problem is sin. It's what separates us from God. And we all commit it, right? It's a sin issue. And the purpose of men had no clue that they were actively providing a way for the sin problem to be completely defeated. The killing of the Son of Man was the only way to make us whole again. That's the reality. And what these people intended for evil, God intended for good. 
I implore you and I pray that if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and submitted your life to him, stop waiting. This Christmas season isn't about hot cocoa. It's not about candy canes. It's the fact that Jesus Christ was born a babe in a manger and God has come to live and dwell with us. Ever since we were exiled in Genesis 3 and we were kicked out of the garden, we didn't have relationship with God. You will be searching and wandering, trying to fill your life with whatever will fill it. And it's only Christ because you were created by him, for him. And if you try to fill anything else, you will be so miserable. And I mean that. And I love you enough to say that. It's not about just right behavior. It's about Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us. It's that you are loved far more than you probably think. That you are cared for far more than you probably think. That's why I just drill in on who Jesus Christ is every week. He comes to those who are outcasts. He comes to those who are long-suffering. He comes to those who are far off because he loves you and wants to redeem you and restore you back into relationship with him. There is no other gift that you should want to receive rather than salvation brought by Jesus Christ. It's the best gift in the world. Father, thank you for these men and women. Thank you for this place. Father, I pray today as we are preparing for communion that we would actively look at communion as what it is. It's a remembrance of your death and resurrection, that your blood was shed for us and your body was broken for us. And Father, I pray that we would repent and we would say, Lord, this is how I've sinned. I pray if we have hatred in our hearts for other brothers that we would ask for forgiveness. And I pray that we would trust in you wholeheartedly today. If we have not trust in you, I pray that we would actively do that today. You are our king. You are our God. You are our Lord. You have made us portable temples to go out to share the goodness of you. Father, forgive me for my sins, the sins that I have committed. I am not perfect. There is one who is perfect. Father, you come to those who are hurting and heartbroken and lost. I'm, I thank you for that. Because without you, I have nothing. But it's in Jesus' name, amen.